This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Martha Reinberg, an Oakland-based writer and performer. She is the principal director of the Solo Performance Workshop, and she's getting an online master's degree in how to keep cats from scratching leather furniture. Martha, welcome. Thank you, world. Thank you, Daniel. How is your degree going? Um, You know, it's a pretty rigorous online uh, degree, mm-hmm. and um, I am getting a solid C. Solid C counts? Yeah, the furniture is mostly shredded, and uh, still love the cats. C's so. get degrees. Is this, this your first time having cats, or is this just your first time having nice furniture and cats? That's more like it. Mm-hmm. That's more like it. Two new cats, two relatively nice pieces of furniture. I want it all to work. I hope that it does. <laughs> Thanks, you. Good luck. Um, I'm very excited to move almost immediately from cats to all my coworkers politely hate me, um, which is our, our first letter writer's problem. And I would love it if you would read that letter for us. Oh, goody. Subject, disliked or benignly ignored, I can't tell which. Dear Prudence, I've been a teacher for over 20 years. I have a departmental workroom where we all work when we're not teaching. My colleagues are professional and funny. Two years ago, my father died, and only one colleague came to his funeral. Since then, more colleagues' parents have died, and many people have gone to those funerals, I'm assuming. Additionally, only one out of five people invited to my after-elopement celebration years ago came. It also was painful to me that apparently no one at work gives a shit. I once broached this with our secretary, asking, what's wrong with me? She gave me a huge hug and said, nothing. They are clicky, and you are a wonderful, kind person. I have attended every departmental wedding I've been invited to and most funerals. Each time this happens, I am deeply hurt all over again. How can I get this to hurt less? I think this one's really straightforward. I think that they are not benignly ignoring you. I think they are being clicky and excluding you, and that's terrible. And I think the solution is don't go to their weddings and don't go to their funerals. <laughs> I, and I don't mean that in like a in an angry way. Say like, I don't care how many of your siblings die. I'm never going to offer my condolences. I just mean, you know, make them uh, less a part of your social life. Just politely say that you can't attend and then make plans with people who like you. Yeah, I read this and I thought about, I thought about two things. One is... There's the colleagues part in this, their mm-hmm. behavior, and then there's our dear writers part in this. And um, can't do anything about the colleagues and their crappy crap. But um, but I'm, I want to take this lovely teacher by the hand and say, you need to lower your expectations. Yeah. I, I think especially the hard thing is they've been there 20 years and their colleagues are funny. So there's just this thought of like, but we get along so well at work. I don't understand why that doesn't translate into wanting to be real friends who show up for the big milestones in each other's lives. Um, And that's hard. It would be easier maybe if they were just sort of distant at work and that was just the vibe. But when they're often really casual and friendly and they seem to be close with one another, it can feel additionally hurtful when they're not that way with you. But for whatever reason, um, they are missing out on the delight that is you. (laughs) And that sucks for them. But I think all you need to do is be distantly friendly at work and um, don't don't put yourself in the way of of uh, opening yourself up to be hurt again. Just think of your coworkers as people who make, you know, the hours between, you know, eight and four slightly more interesting and then they don't exist afterwards. (laughs) I mean, that's I hear you and I'm nodding and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then I imagine myself in it and I'm like, that's so hard and sad. Um. Which makes me think, did you ever see When Harry Met Sally? I have seen it on average once a month, every month, since I was about 13 years old. Well, then we have a lot in common. It's a perfect so film. when Marie <laughs> is at lunch and is like, um, he's never going to leave her. Oh, yeah. And Sally looks her in the eyes like, Marie, no one thinks he's ever going to leave her. I've right? been looking for a red suede pump. <laughs> <laughs> and like, 
This idea, this idea that somehow they're going to change is the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And so this sort of accepting them as mediocre people that just aren't great. More charming than they are thoughtful. So it might be nice to assign them um, woodland creature attributes like oh it's the squirrel woman you know like she she's so mm, but you wouldn't invite the squirrel into your home and expect it to actually sit at the table and be nice to you like maybe maybe get playful about the way that you lower your expectations for this um less than exciting humanity with i would say the exception of your secretary the departmental secretary sounds like a lovely person Right. Maybe invite her out for coffee sometime. Right. Um, But as for the rest of them, I don't recommend asking them what's going on or trying to bring anything up about this at work because this is work. You guys need to be professional with one another. um, And I I don't think they have a good reason for excluding you. It it sounds like it does not speak well of them that they do this. Um, But I would just say... Uh, work out that hurt elsewhere, invest your time and energy elsewhere. Just think of these people as sort of friendly flakes you get to work with, um, but do not look to them for long-term relationships, even if it feels painful to watch them do it with each other and not with you. Right. Um, Find out that secretary's birthday and rev it up yeah. once a year. Yeah. Um, that's it. Great. So this next one uh, is slightly more difficult to uh back out of. Uh, The subject is help with friends offensive painting. I'm also really nervous about reading this letter because it's going to involve reading a French artist's name. And I do not speak French and I always feel very self-conscious about my French accent. Here we go. Dear Prudence, I often visit a friend who is kind, caring, and thoughtful, almost a little too much, as she frets a lot about the well-being of those around her. She is white and I am black. In her bathroom is a print of The Bath by Jean-Léon Jérôme. Don't know if I said that right. At first, I didn't think much of the picture, but the more I see it, the more it upsets me. I know that if I asked her to move it, she would, but she'd feel terrible and stress about whether or not I liked her as a result. Spoilers, I do! I also know that she would anxiously question every other piece of art she has in her house, wondering if it could possibly offend any visitor she has ever had over. In order not to worry her, I've been ignoring it, reminding myself that it's a product of its time, that she certainly didn't buy it to make a statement, racist or otherwise. I tell myself that it's her house and I don't want to dictate how she decorates, but I also hate being bothered by it. I'm trying to figure out the best solution. Do I just deal with it? Ask her to move it? And if it's the latter, how do I do so without thinking I'm accusing her of being either racist or oblivious? You sound very tired, letter writer. I'm so sorry. You've already, like, spent so much time knowing... Like, oh, she's not just going to say, of course, I'm sorry. She's going to make a whole thing out of it. That's that's tiring. By the way, for listeners who aren't familiar with this painting, I, I certainly recommend Googling it. Um, but the, the painting is very much in the like late 19th century Orientalist style. It is uh, a sort of idealized nude white woman stepping out of a bath being tended to by a black woman in a way that's very like... Um, uh, sort of the the white woman looks like beautiful and relaxed and she's having a great time. You you can imagine why seeing that in someone's bathroom would feel a little like this is a bold statement. Uh, I'm I've I've like I'm like holding my breath to keep from chuckling constantly. Um the yeah, bold statement indeed. I, I love the idea that this white woman, by the way, I'm white. We might all guess, having seen your picture, that you're white. Yes. Is that true? You're white. Yes, we share that attribute. Um, when I think about a white woman who has ooh, this print, because it's not the original, um, hanging in her bathroom and not being at all aware how this might be perceived by anyone, um, I think, oh, white people, we've got to step up and help each other out. We need to help each other see. And so, of course, our letter writer has identified as a black person, which I really appreciate. Like when I think about this. Right. It would be different advice if this were another white person. Right. I really do care about the way that especially white people like to tell black people how to talk about racism. You know, we, we like to dole out that advice. A plenty. Um, but what I what I appreciate the delicacy of this is here. There's this friend who is kind of sounds like um, oh, frets a little too much. I think our friend writes, and so um, how it might be kind of extra exhausting to negotiate this um, this vulnerable 
piece of information. Like, wow, your your choice in print in the bathroom makes me uncomfortable. And I wanted to let you know that so that you can um, attend to it. And it's not what I, what I think is so curious about it, too. It's not like, wow, um, I'm not into George O'Keefe and uh, it's rubbing me the wrong way. I mean, it's it's this like really strong colonialist content. Yeah. Um, and when I think about that, I think about like the white fragility that is embedded in that. Totally. Um, that I really want to encourage our letter writer um, to uh, to not take care of her uh, as much as as much as they're able. Yeah. So I do think you know if this is somebody that you want to see more of, it sounds like you want to continue the friendship, um, and and it also distresses you to look at. I, I think it makes a lot of sense to want to say something to her. Um, and if you do decide that that's what you want to do, I think it will be helpful to to preface it with, um, I want to talk to you about this. I really want you to know on like a scale of one to 10, like this is a three or a four for me. I am not asking you to reevaluate your whole life. I don't want to make this a huge thing, but I would like you to reconsider hanging this picture. Um, and I, you know, I don't want you to ask me about all the other paintings in your house. And I don't want you to feel like you need to make this up to me all the time. And then just go with the painting in your bathroom uh, of a white woman being tended to by a black woman makes me uncomfortable. Would you consider taking it down? Um, and, you know, hopefully that will help cue her into how big her response should be. Because, you know, this is part of why oftentimes, you know, the response to you have done something racist that a white person can have can be so overwhelming and exhausting for somebody mm-hmm. else. It's like, I'm not even going to bother because I know that you will fuck that up. Because um, it's if it turns into her being like, my God, I can't believe I did this. You have to forgive me. Every time she sees you like awkwardly bringing up something not racist she did today so that you can be like, great, I will add it to the points system that I have been keeping for you. Like, that would be exhausting. I hope she doesn't do that. I hope she listens to the podcast. And I hope that if she does, she can hear this and recognize her bathroom um, and realize... <laughs> oh my God, that's me! Yeah, that like what I could do for my friend is apologize and take it down. Mm-hmm. And then what I can do for myself that would not make her more uncomfortable is deal with my own feelings of guilt and self-recrimination and anxiety uh, elsewhere, like in a journal or with a therapist who I pay money to mm-hmm. um, or among my white friends so that we can figure out how to do better. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that that's probably, probably going to be your best bet. Um, and, and if she keeps coming back and saying, do you think I'm an okay person? Do you think I'm an okay person? Then you can kind of say, this is actually more work for me than the painting. Um, right. You're kind of reenacting the painting right now, white lady. <laughs> You're asking me to tend to you in your, uh, your, in your vulnerability. Um, which is actually masked fragility. Um, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about a time when a friend of mine who's black offered me some feedback. I had used the word articulate unknowingly, and the the generousness of her to offer to me. She had been speaking at a public event that I was at too, and I was really appreciating what she brought to the event and her perspective. Um, and I used the word articulate, and mm-hmm. I did not realize that I had stepped on or stepped into or set off this old um, form of racism that white people use all the time when talking to black folks about the way that they speak and compliment this compliment that tends to be coded, even though I didn't know mm-hmm. I was participating in this um, this legacy yeah. of, of racism. And um, she so generously and kindly said, I just want to let you know the word articulate gets used a lot when, when white folks are complimenting black folks on their public speaking. And I mean, I felt the color, I felt the blood drain from my body. And, um, and, I, and I was embarrassed. And I knew I had to think about that. I didn't exactly feel defensive. Uh, it was more like, Oh no! I've got to learn about this, mm-hmm. um, and and also like the like the desire to like get the racism off me, right? As though it sits on the surface, right? It's, that's not the problem. The problem is what's on the inside and how those thoughts get on everything, right? And then when I think about my friend Marlene, thank you, Marlene, for the generosity of letting me know that, and also not taking care of me. And then we moved on to other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, it is, I think, an act of um, 
generosity and friendship. If somebody in your life tells you a white person that you've done or said something racist, because part of what that means is they want to risk the possibility of you're mm-hmm. having a really bad response because they believe that you want to do better and that you want to not continue to commit whatever harm that it is that you've caused. And again, for that friend, I hope that that friend can stop and think, um, uh, you know, racism does not require a conscious, malicious intent mm-hmm. um, in order to be racist. And 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 I, I also recognize, like, in myself at different points in my life when I have had a friend say, you have just done or said something racist, um, a similar sense of my instinctive white response is, that can't be true about me. That's the worst thing that could be said about me. I have to figure out a way to make this not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not an impulse that leads to good and productive and non-racist <laughs> actions. Like, that needs to... You need to recognize that as, like, the racism within you feeling panicked and threatened. And also just that sense of, like, and again, I'm I'm speaking directly to the friend here who has not written to us. But, um, you know, if you are white and you have grown up in the United States and your friend says to you, you have done or said something racist and you didn't mean to, um, that shouldn't be a – again, not that, like, that shouldn't be a surprise and you should be like, oh, of course it's going to happen. Big deal. But of course you said or did something racist. Mm-hmm. You grew up in the United States of America as a white person. You, you, I promise you, you have been given racist messaging your whole life. Uh, and you can't just opt out of that overnight. So, you know, for your friend, I think hopefully what she would be able to understand is like, yes, even if I didn't realize it at the time, the reason I was able to look at that painting and think, that reminds me of taking a nice bath and relaxing in my bathroom <laughs> without noticing, like, the work of the black woman off to the side and what that meant for her in that painting. Um, that was the product of racism and white supremacy. It happens without your consciously having to choose it because that's how this country works. So, again, you know, there's that fear of, like, I don't want her to think I'm accusing her of being racist. She was and is being racist. And she can stop. And it doesn't mean that she is an unforgivable person. Um, but that is true. Again, I'm not saying this because you have to give her this whole speech. I just am hoping maybe she listens to this podcast. Um and, you know, maybe she can pick up a copy of Edward Said in her spare time. But in the meantime, <laughs> um, I, I hope that you, you don't, you're able to say this to her. I hope she listens well. If she kind of starts to spiral, I hope you can feel like you can say, I really do like you. I promise you I'm not saying this uh, because I want you to panic. Uh, it's also not that big a deal. I just want you to know that I don't like looking at it and I would like you to move it. But I don't want to keep talking about this. Um, Hopefully that will shut it down. And I secretly love the idea, actually, that she might <laughs> she might reassess all the art in her home to consider whether or not it would offend visitors. I'm sort of like, no, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd I mean, be awesome. It, it's 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 great to think about what my yeah. people see when they see the art in my home. Um, and I, I don't think if if the worst thing that happens to your friend is she spends a while looking at her art with fresh eyes and considering different perspectives, A of all, that's good. That's how art should go. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and B of all, if she has other, you know, forms of art that are just like if, if all the art in her house is like titled the Odalisque at the bath, like she should get some different art. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> all right. If you would uh, please read our next letter. Delightfully. Okay. Subject, how can I get my brother to understand the consequences of quitting his job? Dear Prudence, four years ago, in my mid-twenties, I left a secure, but deeply unfulfilling, job to start a one-person business in my field. After a lot of stress and hard work, I've reached a point where my business is profitable. Congratulations. And while I don't make anything close to what I used to, I can survive. Yesterday, my brother informed my family that he was leaving his lucrative job to become a writer and a blogger. Upon further probing, I discovered that he has not spoken to any writers or bloggers and has done little to research, little to no research on this career shift. When I urged him to network and talk to other writers before making such a step, he informed me that his decision was final. I believe my brother is making a rash decision that will ultimately hurt his career prospects. However, even more than that, I feel an enormous amount of guilt that my decision to start my own business has motivated this. I've largely shielded him and my family from the negative consequences of my decision, including depression, multiple suicide attempts, and immense amounts of financial stress. 
Now I'm concerned that he's opening himself up to the same issues and is repeating the mistakes I've made. Is there a, is there a way that I can make him reevaluate his decision without being manipulative or making myself look like a hypocrite? So, there's yeah, I, I think that there is actually more to be done in terms of I think the letter writer should maybe look at whether or not they want to change their job. I know they say that they're able to survive right now, but I, I think rather than thinking what happened to me is about to happen to my brother, like what you describe from depression to multiple suicide attempts to barely being able to survive now, I'm worried that you don't have the help you need. And I'm worried that you're just barely making it from day to day. And and so I don't know if if getting help right now would just mean talking to one or two more people in your life a little bit about how hard this has been for you. Um, if that means looking for work elsewhere, if if that means, you know, I'm, I'm guessing seeing a therapist right now is not financially in the cards, but maybe talking to somebody in your family or a close friend who would be able to help you a little bit, like financially while you're trying to figure out your next move. I think that's the way forward here because you've already tried to bring this up with your brother and he seems very uninterested in getting advice, which is his right. Mm-hmm. But but that's my that's my thought is is you need and deserve more help than you're getting um, rather than you can find a way to say this to your brother so that he doesn't do what he's already doing. Yeah, you know, I hear this letter and I, I – I so appreciate the 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 doubling down in it. Like, how can I stop my brother from making a mistake? I've made some hard choices. Um, I'm so I, I hear really two things happening. There's the brother's story, and then there's our dear writer's story, and um, and that those two things aren't necessarily at all connected, but that our writer thinks they are. Um, and you know, I know I know a thing or two about um, entrepreneurialism, and it's very isolating. It it is it is a path forward that is um, people tend to feel like they are on islands, you know, and uh, and so it's. I really appreciate your point, Daniel, about like maybe you need more support than you're getting. Um, and my guess is, if you thought your family would be a great source of support, you might have already talked to them about the things that are hard. But for whatever reasons, you haven't. Um, And sometimes that has to do with, like, wanting everyone to think you're being successful when you've made a really big, bold step. Um, And and some some of the humility of showing our challenges to the people that we care about and really want to impress, which is sometimes our family. Um, But also there can be, like... I say this so tenderly. Like, there's a little bit of a sense of like grandioseness in this, like you know, um, maybe I've inspired him to do a thing, right? Like, because of me, he's doing this, and I'm kind of the only person who can stop him, right? Yes. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe he feels unfulfilled in his work, and he really wants to go on this creative adventure. And I mean, as an artist, I don't want anyone to be like, that's not going to pay the bills. Like that is that does not. A, it doesn't make me turn away from it. <laughs> B, it doesn't make me want to get any closer to you. Yeah, I I, I, I don't think the letter writer is like being um, uh, like self-centered. But I do think you don't have as much power in this situation as you're worried that you do. Right. Um, so I, I, I really just think, again, I can totally understand why you would not want to talk to your family about the fact that you've – um, you know, attempted to kill yourself. There's a lot of reasons why you might want to keep that more private. But I, I just think, like, regardless of what your brother's doing, sharing with your family a little bit about, like, this has been really, really hard for me mm-hmm. will be good for you with no objective or goal other than letting your family know how hard you've had it the last couple of years. Right. Let them get to actually know you. Yeah. Right. Rather than this sort of a version of you. Um, and then what I find. When I have, like, fronted a version of myself because it's, um, well, because I'm I'm actually protecting a part of myself mm-hmm. that feels really tender, um, then then it's essentially like the shellac of me is interacting with the shellac of someone else, and I don't actually get to know them either. So I'm wondering about our letter writer here if maybe um, the more, the more, like, more real they're able to be mm-hmm. with their brother without there being an outcome in mind rather than like trying to convince the brother of something to like actually let their guard down so that the brother can see, see see our writer. Um, 
then that just that's actually that means that maybe they could actually um, overlap in their experience together. And yeah. so I suspect that this brother is going to go forward and write and blog away, mm-hmm. you know, with marvelous success and lots of eating it too, you know, yeah. um, such is the way. But uh, wouldn't it be nice for them to be like colleagues in that experience rather yeah. than um, I told you not to do that? Yeah, and I think even just to go back to your brother and to say, you know. I'm really sorry if it seemed like I was trying to tell you what to do. I mostly uh, just want you to know if you ever have questions about starting your own business, I'd be happy to answer them. In a lot of ways, it's been much harder than I could have anticipated. Um, So again, not because I want to change your mind, but I just want you to feel a little more freedom than I did um, to ask questions. Um, That way, you know, he knows you're not trying to get him to do something or another. You just genuinely want to be able to be helpful to him if he wants to talk to someone else who's been through something similar. And then, you know, recognize that if he wants to do this, it's not solely because of you. Uh, He may be given all the warnings in the world and still, you know, anybody who starts their own business, I think, has a little bit of that mindset of like, it won't happen to me. So to some extent, you kind of can't talk someone out of it. Um, and, and also just, yeah, figure out ways, who are the people in my life that I trust enough to share some of the struggles I've been carrying alone and how can I ask them for a little bit of help? Right. Um, And then, and then they can swap, you know, uh, um, they can swap ideas about which antidepressants work best. Oh man. You know, yeah. If that's where you're both at, hopefully you can lean on one another for support, even if it's just like a matter of co-working from home at each other's places. Any little ways you two can help each other out would be fabulous. But mostly, I think you get to ask for help and you don't have to make yourself responsible for your brother's decision. You did not cause him to do this and you're not the only person who can stop him. True that. All right. So we're sticking with uh, some issues with siblings. This one makes me much angrier. Obviously. Oh, I can't um, wait. Daniel's I, eyebrows are moving around. This is exciting. A- anytime someone is benefiting from the free work of a family member and also trying to tell them how to do it, it gets my whole dander up. <laughs> All right. So the subject is cooking. Dear Prudence, I am the main cook in my family. I feed my husband, stepdaughter, three nephews, and myself five days a week. I pick up my nephews because I work early and my sister works late. I'm a pretty basic cook and a fan of the microwave. My sister gets her chef on during the weekend. She creates elaborate, good meals. And honestly, she's better at it than me and takes more joy in it. But she drags me down. Even though I ask her not to, she sends me recipes, foodie junk, and backhand compliments of, you could do so much if you just prepared earlier. I've asked her to stop. I flat out told her to stop, but she continues. I'm ready to cross the line and tell her to pay for after-school childcare or a personal chef. I know she means well, but all she makes me feel like is a failure as a wife and mother. How do I get through to her without breaking our relationship? Oh, give me five minutes on the phone with your sister. <laughs> I would like to yell at her very much. Or maybe not yell, but speak very sternly. I, um... Man, oh man, oh man. Yeah, if she would like to prepare her kids meals, she is more than welcome to uh, do a bunch of extra meal prep on the weekends and send that food over with the kids. But to be like bugging you regularly saying, it's not enough that you pick up my kids and feed them for what sounds like free. Uh, (laughs) You also should be serving them ortolan and like recipes out of Alexander Dumas Dictionary of Cuisine. You could do so much more if you just prepped. It's so obnoxious. It's so obnoxious. Like, the only way I could even remotely imagine there being a gentle mm, critique is way too strong a word. Feedback would be like, um, could I send some carrot sticks over? Because I think all the kids are eating is loaves of white bread like i could imagine that like if there was some like nutritional concern like if you, she you, wanted to send over food with the kids she'd be welcome exactly. to do it exactly it's not what she's doing but she's not sending food nor nor is it even it's it's purely judgy i mean yeah. it's just flat out judgy like um it's yeah like so this i love this question though like how do i get through with her upbreaking our relationship I think it's she's the sister's the one that's breaking it. Yeah. I don't think our writer is breaking anything. I think our writer is like flexing, flexing, mm-hmm. flexing until until her sister's pushing so hard that it's causing the crack. 
Yeah. So I, I think it's good that you're thinking about it before you reach the point where you say something really over the line. I often hear from people just after they're like, <laughs> I was putting up with a really difficult situation for way too long. But then I got so mad I said something really awful. And now I'm in the position of having to apologize. And I do not want you to have to apologize to your sister. So I'm glad you got in touch with us first. Uh, I, I think what you propose is excellent. I think you say to your sister, I've asked you to stop this mm, a whole bunch. You don't. Um, it's getting to a point where you need to, if you want something other than the child care I provide you, um, to start thinking about paying somebody. But we're done having these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this really clear line, you know, like we call those boundaries sometimes. Sure. Um, but also when I think about like the care of the internal care of our writer, um, like I just want to say you're fucking killing it Mm. like you're feeding your family five days a week you're taking care of your kids and other people's kids you know your your nieces and nephews um nephews nephews nephews. um like like this is this is like you're being of such loving service and i'm so sorry you're not getting the props for the amount of work and care and labor that goes into that that's kind of being taken for not kind of that is being taken for granted so i just want to like big shout out to like you're doing real real work um and uh and it's great that your sister's different than you and has like a you know a different way of being in the world no it sucks that your sister's different from you because you're it's not just different in terms of like your sister's able to be different because she has somebody doing the second shift for her five days a week like she has a lot of free. T- of course, she has fun cooking on the weekends because it's not like, you know, I have 45 minutes to feed a bunch of screaming hungry kids who have been at school all day. And then like a partner who just came home from work, like those are two very separate jobs, like cooking on the weekend when it's like, ooh, I wonder what a tagine is. I'll try making it today versus like it's 530 and small children are starving. Um she's able to be that way because you do this work for her. So in addition to pushing that back, I think you should also start asking your sister for money. I think she should pay you for this childcare, um, even if it's just like a token amount of like defraying groceries. I think you should consider asking her to pay you for looking after her kids five days a week. Um, I also think, you know, depending on your husband's circumstances, he should be spending an hour or two on the weekends doing a little bit of meal prep or offering to make food when he gets home at the end of the day of work himself. Like, it's not just your sister right now. It's that you are the cook for all of these people. And I would I, I would I think it will really help if you could say to your husband, I, I need you to help me out a little bit more. And I don't know how old the nephews are, but they might be at an age where you can start to enlist them and say like, hey, I need you to chop these carrots. I will supervise you so you don't chop off all of your hands, but like get them involved in the helping you process. Like now is the time for all good men to come to their country's aid, uh, as the saying goes, not about cooking, but like now is the time to start saying, I can't just keep being this person for everyone. I need help. I need financial help. I need material help. I need some I, I I can't be everyone's mom, you know, like you're you're food wise. You're like the meal mom. And if there's I, Daniel, one, I just have to say I love I like Daniel's chairs beginning to revolve <laughs> and like sleeves have been rolled up. And like, I love that this has touched your nerve. It, it just, you know, I get a lot of letters like this mm. and it's such a perfect storm of somebody. It's always a woman. Um, where there's just like eight different levels of people failing to notice and people failing to help. And maybe there's one or two especially bad actors who are being really over the top. But it's just everyone being like, oh, how do meals happen? Oh, I've never thought about the dishwasher before. And I'm just like, (laughs) I know what it feels like to go to bed and think about the next day and be like, does everyone have what they need for lunch? Um, Or like, I remember where the dust bunnies were in the kitchen and that I'm going to be the person held responsible for it. So before I do any Anything else tomorrow, I'm going to have to handle that. No one's going to notice or thank me for it. And then I'm on to the next thing. Um, and when that person, when that woman um, snaps, everyone's like, this is so weird. I don't know. Like, why didn't you just tell us you needed help? And it's like, because that's a job, too. Because then every time I tell you I need something, look, the point <laughs> is I really feel for this lady. 
everyone around her needs to step up a whole lot and she needs to push back against her sister. And you can say all of this gently but firmly. You don't have to yell at her. If she gets real huffy um, or if she says, fine, I'll stop sending you recipes. My gosh, but I'm not going to pay you. Then you can just say, great. If you want somebody who is willing to like adopt certain recipes, I think you should look for somebody uh, who's willing to do it professionally. But that person's not me. Yeah, the sentence of like... uh I'm feeling like a failure as a wife and mother. I'm like, you are you are anything but failing. Yeah. You are anything but failing. A couple of people are failing you right now. <laughs> right. You are not failing. You are doing as hard as you can. Doing as hard as you can. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for the next letter because I'm clearly like losing coherence at this point. All right. Subject. How do I deal with a racist cousin? That makes me suck air through my teeth. Dear Prudence, a family member recently married a racist man. I've interacted with him very little, but when I have, he's been standoffish and wants to use the N-word. I was not looking forward to Christmas this year because of his broodiness and racism, but I was surprised at how well he interacted with everybody. He was still quiet, but talked and interacted far more than in the past. I was mentally prepared to have to deal with this very hateful person, but I found myself enjoying his company. The problem is, I still know he's an unabashed racist. I'm not close enough to have a conversation about how inappropriate I think the N-word is, nor do I think that would ever go well with the rest of my family. I'm torn about being nice to him. I feel like being nice to him almost enables the hatred of his racist views, but I also think that being mean towards people spreads hatred in and of itself. If he was actively being racist to a person of color, I wouldn't hesitate to intervene. We don't see each other enough for me to try to build up a friendship and then confront him. How do I interact with him when he's not being racist or espousing racist views? Do I just distance myself from him at at family events? I have good news. You do not have to be friends with someone to confront them about saying the N-word. And you also don't have to wait for them to be mean to someone else. And you also get to do it even though they said it a couple of weeks or months ago. Uh, I mean... I, I want to get symbols to uh, punctuate everything you just said. You know, this is kind of like what we were talking about earlier with uh-huh. that art thing where it's just like a lot of white people think racism is being mean. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's it's not about are you yelling at somebody and it's not about did a person of color hear it. Um, you know, the, the, the racism here is very real and it does not require – um, anything all, all you already like met the criteria for confronting him on it when you heard him say that word that's all yep. you need um, and it doesn't matter how friendly he was being at the time it doesn't Mm-mm. matter if he wants to claim he was joking Mm-mm. all you need to do is um, take him aside and just say um, I should have said something at the time I didn't and I'm ashamed of that uh, but that one time that we got together and you said the n-word that's not okay and I want you to not say it again yeah. And that's it. And he can try to do the whole, oh, I don't really remember. Uh, I was joking. And you can just say, I don't want you to do it again. That's right. it. Yeah. I mean, and also this idea that um, that when racism is happening live, if it's not in front of people of color, it's not as damaging is a myth. Mm-hmm. Like, here it is. It's affected you, white writer. And, and now it's affecting me. <laughs> like, you know, like. It's th- it, that's how racism works. Yeah, and it perpetuates the idea in this family that it's okay to do this. If there mm-hmm. were kids around, they're learning. That's an okay word to say. Mm-hmm. Like that's passing it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what you need to do is say that. A- a- and if he pushes back, if he gets mad at you, if it turns into a big family fight, that's good. Right. That's worth fighting about. And if that means that you learn that you have other family members who say it's fine when a white person says the N-word and, in fact, I want to go to bat for him, um, then it is incumbent upon you mm-hmm. to use whatever tactics you have at your disposal, including like uh, like up to and including saying you are defending racism and I don't want to be around it. That's good that you get to do that. We live in very, like, difficult racist times, and it will be good for you to take a stand against racism. Um, So just, like, if your only response is, I'm going to be slightly less close to this guy when we have a lot of family events together, that is insufficient. (laughs) You you know he has said it. You have heard him say it, and your response to it was nothing. So as far as he knows, you think it's fine. Well, and this— you said something I think was great, Daniel. You said that that racism um, is like this idea that it's mean, that it comes out in this mean way necessarily. And I'm like, right. Well, in addition to that, that also naming racism gets seen as mean. Mm-hmm. And like, no, it's not. It, it's absolutely not. Um, 
although it might be really scary to do yeah. because it's upsetting the apple cart. It's it's talking about the elephant in the room. It might make it sounds like the family might get really uncomfortable. I mean, there's some expectation around the family not enjoying this kind of debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think about like we're living in January of 2019, and the the very real and present danger that exists all over our nation around specifically around racism Mm -hmm. and um, these divides between red and blue communities. Um, And when I think about like, we keep expecting someone out there is going to be do the bridging and Mm -hmm. like, no, actually it's when we actually care about people already. So the fact that he's sometimes not a total flaming asshole, great. Mm -hmm. Then that actually means that you can, get near him enough to talk to him versus finding some, you know, scary racist on the street that you're going to sidle up to. Like, no, this is someone actually in a shared family home that you have an opportunity to actually engage in and have integrity um, around. Yeah. And, and, you know, if if you're worried that the rest of your family would not react well to hearing somebody say, you shouldn't say the N-word— you, you, you need to have a reckoning with your family. Right. Um, Better and, to know that yeah, now. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, um, white supremacy is trying to, like, be at work in you. And the voice of white supremacy is, but he's really nice. Mm-hmm. And when he's not being racist, he's a really cool guy. And wouldn't it be nicer to have really fun, comfortable family events where, you know, maybe it'd be uncomfortable if a person of color came by, but hopefully none ever will. <laughs> And we can all just kind of stay in our little white family and I can feel good about myself because I feel a little uncomfortable when they say racist things, but I don't do or say anything about it. Um, and, and that is how people like this um, are, are able to um, be emboldened and perpetuate their more active racism as compared to your more passive, complacent, friendly racism. And again, letter writer, I'm not saying that to say, like, you're bad and we're good here in the studio, but I'm saying right now you have an opportunity to not do the work of whiteness. And it's going to feel uncomfortable and unnatural because the way whiteness works is it says white comfort is more important than anything else in the world. Um, But, like, you know, especially January 2019, like, we've seen some, like, young white people behave viciously racistly in public Mm -hmm. and then get to go on, like, a very expensive whirlwind glittering media tour explaining why they're not racist because they own pullovers. And it's just like, I I bet this wasn't the first time in their life those kids were racist in public. And I bet they've got a lot of family members who would describe Mm -hmm. them as like, you know, a little iffy, but when he's not being racist, he's a great kid. Um, And when somebody says the N-word, you just get to deal with that. You don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to worry if they're like, good or talented at something you don't have to worry about whether or not they're fun to talk to all you have to worry about is they just said the n-word i get to address that right if he walked into the if he walked into christmas with a running chainsaw and started spinning it around we'd be like you know fred's usually just so nice except mm-hmm. for that little chainsaw when incident. the chainsaw's not in his hands he just spins beautifully right we're like doesn't matter like no you say put the chainsaw down fred you know you get right on it you don't you don't wait around for it maybe to hit someone yeah um because the reality is he's making it unsafe for everybody. Yeah. And so, you know, you're so close. And I think this is the this is the mm-hmm. key line is uh, I feel like being nice to him almost enables the hatred of his racist views. Almost nothing. It does. Absolutely. Um, but I also think that being mean towards people spreads hatred in and of itself. If you think telling someone it's not OK to say the N word is the same thing as saying the N word. Like, you know that that's not true. You know that those aren't the same things. You know that saying don't say the N-word has nothing on saying the N-word. And you know that only one of those actions carries a history of uh, real political clout behind it. You know that there are very real people in this country who have suffered, who have been disenfranchised, uh, who have been economically disadvantaged, who have been like hurt and killed over that word and the power and the weight that it carries. Um, so pretending that saying that's racist and you need to stop is just as bad as racism, is an ugly false equivalency, uh, and you need to stop perpetuating that lie. You need to stop it now. And I, and I just love the idea that, like, you get to say what you mean and mean what you say without saying it mean. Yeah. 
You don't. You don't have to be cruel at all. You, you. You have the gift of clarity here, which Amen. is just. I should have said something before. I was wrong not to. I was uncomfortable, and so I let comfort take precedence in that moment. I shouldn't have done it. I want to say something now. You said the N word. That was wrong. Don't do it anymore. There was nothing mean in that. Mm-mm. That was a simple gracious series of sentences no curse words were employed no nope. you never told him you know uh, something violent towards him you didn't use any like dehumanizing language mm-hmm. you named reality you said that what was wrong was wrong that's it mm-hmm. so uh, you're, the work in front of you is very simple it's not easy there's going to be a huge part of you that will want to resist it you will not be rewarded for doing it no one is going to say great job in your family no one's going to thank you for it and you need to do it you need to do it today would you read our next letter i would all right subject relationship uncertainty dear prudence i have been in a loving supportive relationship with a wonderful man for six years it was a hell of a romance i'm noticing the past tense Nine months after we met, I moved countries to be with him, and we've been together ever since. A few days before Christmas, he pocket-dialed me, and I heard a muffled conversation with a woman. I called back asking who he is with. He said he was alone. Hmm. As soon as we hung up, he then texted me to say he was with an ex-colleague who is also a good friend of his. And he didn't tell me because he didn't want to upset me. He later admitted that he has some feelings for her but doesn't love her and that he's been having doubts about us and doesn't know if he wants to pursue our relationship. He doesn't know if he wants to be single or with this woman either. He's quite simply lost, unable to decide where he wants his life to take him. Having experienced this exact same thing, I have tried to be supportive and explained it as normal, but he has to make up his mind. Problem is, he's admitted to never being able to make decisions and dragging his feet along enough, long enough so that others do it for him. He came to the discussion ready to break up, and so did I, but neither of us could or wanted to do it. He has since stopped talking to this woman of his own initiative. I know that we love each other. I know that we can have a great life together, and I know that we both love the life we have built together. I've been going to therapy to work on my own issues, and it's helped me immensely. It was a huge blow to me yesterday when, after explaining what my therapist had suggested, he asked me how I would feel if he spoke to this woman again. I froze and didn't say anything for a long time. Truthfully, I would feel threatened, hurt, and betrayed, but didn't let on. I asked what he wanted out of it, and I got the same answer as always. I don't know. This is the answer to most things nowadays. I feel like I'm losing my mind, obsessively thinking about the possible outcomes. How can resolve this ASAP if I should just rip the bandaid off and get it over with, or if I should wait for him to choose me as I did him when I was in the same boat two years ago? What? He knows about this. I'm hurting daily and hate the suspense, the back and forth, the ups and downs, the stress, the uncertainty, the hurt, the anger, mine and his. It is becoming too much. Thank you for reading all that. I'm so sorry. I it was mentioning this uh, earlier, but I, I had edited this, edited this way down, and then we got in here and looked at it. And I was like, "Oh, I needed to edit it way more." Well, what's it, the length of it? Isn't the taxing part? It's the layers of it. Like more and more layers get revealed, right? Like two years ago, you were also maybe having an affair with an ex colleague and butt dialed him. Like, <laughs> what details are are consistent between your two stories. I mean, ooh, and and I also, I realize this might not be the shining part of the crown of this question, but I am struck by, I know we'd be happy together. I know if he just would do what I wanted, things would work out the way I want them to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and then also this really key word, obsessive. I really, I really found that word to be an important word. Mm. I feel like I'm losing my mind obsessively thinking about possible outcomes. Uh, so the first part of this letter, I found that I was really drawn to like the um, this kind of compassion that our letter writer has for their partner. Um, and rather than this sort of this rigidness and um, this like, strict um, idea about, I don't know, human sexuality or about um, the way love works, that there was this sort of like softness around all that. And a trust of him. And then that seems to get like, I don't know, like acid gets poured on it. And it just starts to dissolve and dissolve and dissolve into obsessive thinking and outcomes. And, um, and, and of course, this mission in there somewhere that 
<laughs> me too. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that maybe I, the phrase that comes to mind is shit or get off the pot. I, which I, I want to be clear. I don't think I've ever said that in my entire life. Really? It's not one of my go-tos. I'm so excited that the show brought that phrase out of you. It really it, yeah. it, like I, 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 I feel it in my elbows. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to do some push-ups around this. Yeah, and, and I think, to me, it feels very clear that the two of them need to break up. Um, but I, I can definitely relate to, um, like, you know, the beginning of our relationship was such a wonderful story. And for such a long time, things were so good. Mm. And for it to end this way, which is such a weird combination of, like, infidelity, uh, even if they have not physically hooked up. That's like, not where infidelity, infidelity begins. Um, for it to end in kind of, like, wishy-washiness, infidelity, mm-hmm. a weird butt dial, feels both too dramatic and too tawdry and too just, like, wishy-washy for that to be the ending. So the the part of my brain that I was always looking for puzzles or patterns or solutions wants to feel like there's got to be a way out of this. It can't end like this. I, I can definitely relate to that. And I've been in that relationship. I've ended that relationship. Um, <laughs> but where it was sort of like, yes, if I'm honest, I think both of us have been like less involved emotionally than we were for a really long time. But neither of us wants to admit defeat or or how bad it's gotten and i certainly don't want to acknowledge the degree to which this person has like clearly stepped out on me Mm. um well and this this is also i think an important part too i think in page two of the letter mm -hmm. um i i froze and didn't say anything and when he and and but didn't let on Mm. that i would feel betrayed and i think oh this is this is your moment. This is your moment to say what's true for you, which is like I don't like this. Yes, I don't. I don't want any of her butt on my plate. Yeah, you know, and um, and and really, really like making a clear line about what it is that I want. Like I want you in my life. I want to have a monogamous relationship. Yeah. I want to have a um, an emotionally clean relationship. Are you into that? <laughs> and if you're not, then I guess we don't want the same thing. Yeah. Can you enthusiastically commit to that? Right. And, you know, letter writer, I think you know this, but if it helps to hear it out loud, he asked you how you would feel if he spoke to this woman again because he's already talking to her. And in fact, probably never stopped. Oh, Daniel, I didn't see that coming. I've been married for 21 years, very happily. It. I don't even know about Tinder. Sure, so, sure, sure, sure. So, like, oh, my, the whole idea of, like, ew, that's so horrible. Yeah. I mean, if you found out about this because he, like, pocket dialed you and you overheard it. Icky Bob. He's not being honest with you. He asked you that question because he's already doing it and he wants cover for it. Um, <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I feel that, so naive. Well, I, I mean, I think part of what that means is you are in a relationship where this sort of thing is not happening. <laughs> That's good. It better not. Yeah, I, you know, Mary. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think you have every reason to trust your partner. I, I, I do actually have every reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, the the part about I know we could have a great life together. I know we love each other. I think that's rooted in uh, a combination of the past and the future, like what you wish it could be like mm-hmm. and what things used to be like. And when you talk about what things actually feel like now, you say you're hurting daily. Your partner's response to everything is, I don't know. You are not being honest about what hurts you because you're afraid of what a breakup would look like. You want to just rip the Band-Aid off and get it over with or if you should wait for him to choose. That's what you want. You want him to choose you. you. You say as much. You say, I want him to choose me the way I chose him when I was in a similar position, which very curious about that. But apparently we're not getting the details. Um, <laughs> what you want this from this guy is uh, an active declaration of choice. I choose you. Mm-hmm. I want you. I want to be with you. Even if it's hard, even if we have stuff to work out, that's what I want. And what you're getting from him is, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of want to break up, but I actually can't even muster up the energy to do that myself. I was sort of hoping you'd do it for me. Um, that's not even a little bit like being actively chosen. No, it's like it's it's actually actively choosing someone who won't choose you is mm. what it is. Like mm-hmm. letter writer, like yeah. ugh, like I, you know, it's so interesting this idea of like where where our personal responsibility lies. Like it's so easy for me to like lean way outside myself and be like, "You're making me feel this way." Like I'm like <laughs> a friend of mine says, you know, like ah, 
when someone's pushing your buttons, it's because you have buttons. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with buttons? You know, and um, like, right, our dear letter writer has an opportunity to not be in a situation where she's she or he is feeling, mm-hmm. you know, hurt daily. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I, I would just say take I don't know as an answer. If you, you know, because it's been six years and you don't want to, like, just walk away prematurely, fine, go ahead and say, like, here is what I want. It would hurt me deeply if you continued to talk to this woman. I don't want you to see her again. I want to prioritize us. I want to reinvest in us. I want to change our relationship and get back on track. Do you want those things very, very much? And I don't know is, I think, usually a mask for no. Yeah. I don't know is no, but I don't want to look mean. Right. I don't know um, has no in the middle of exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and and also if he says, yes, I want that too, but you don't believe him, that is also a no. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like um, Gut check. You don't even have to ask. Uh, like you have sufficient reason, I think, to end things now. Mm-hmm. But I also understand why you don't necessarily want to do it without saying it one last time. But you say therapy has been helpful, which is great. Um I, I think the therapist is the relationship to invest in, and the boyfriend is the one to cut loose. All right, last letter. Mm-hmm. I think we're ending on a slightly simpler note, which I'm grateful for because um, we just this one's this one's I think actually a little fun. Yeah, exactly. It's it's low stakes. Subject is time for a friendship breakup. Dear Prudence, over the last two years, I became casual friends with a girl my age. Let's call her Anna, who lives in my building. We were already distant acquaintances before I moved in, and as I began running into her more often, we began making regular plans. Typically, this involved one of us dropping by the other's place for wine and snacks every few weeks. Six months ago, Anna went abroad for a temporary work placement, and we didn't communicate during that time. While she was abroad, I realized I actually didn't miss her at all. We don't have much in common, she dominates our conversations, and our friendship at convenience sucks up a disproportionate amount of time due to proximity. I don't have anything against her, but especially as work is now ramping up, I don't have a strong desire to keep up our hangouts. Anna is now back and keeps texting me about getting together. Is there a way I can break things off for good, even though there's no animosity, or am I stuck kicking the can down the road maybe next week indefinitely? I am so glad that I don't live in a building with anyone I already know. Well, okay. So this has kind of happened to me. Really? Yeah. Um, I lived in a building with some people yep. that also lived in the building because that's what happens when you have neighbors. Mm-hmm. And um, we had this kind of this you, – you could call it a friendship, but we would never have been friends yeah. if we weren't neighbors. Yes. And then this like <laughs> – you know, bad version of three's company begins to happen. And I realized that like, oh, wow, I was providing all this emotional labor, like listening and caring about this person's problems and got no uptake, right, on the Mm -hmm. other side, which is not the same thing as what's happening here. But the similarity part is the idea that like you just get to say no. You get to say, oh, I'm not available. You never, like the gorgeous part of this is like, dear writer, you don't actually need to confront Anna. You don't need to say, I don't want to see you anymore. Like, you could just... Having wine with you every four weeks does not spark joy. Get out. (laughs) Right. You just get to say, "Um, oh, not available. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with work ramping up, I think you have a great opportunity to just say, work's really busy right now. I'll try to let you know if I have some time free. And that puts the ball back in your court. And then you can just go ahead and not ever have some time free. Right. She may occasionally pop up, uh, and then you can always say, like, hey, great to see you. Got to go. You can be friendly to her when you see her in the hallways, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to keep doing that, and that's going to be totally fine. Totally fine. And, I mean, if it was – if it, I don't know. If it felt somehow disingenuous and you just really needed to say sentences about it, you could say, you know, I'm just not as available as I used to be. Yeah. It doesn't even have to get into the intimate parts of, like, I don't really enjoy your humanity. Or or coming up with a bunch of excuses no. that she could, like, pick apart. You can just say, you know, I don't have as much free time as I used to. I hope you're having a fabulous day, you know. Emoji. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and especially since this was only the kind of relationship where you guys would share, like, a couple of snacks every couple of weeks. I, I would be surprised if she got really, really um, in your business about it. Yeah. And this idea of, like 
stuck kicking the can down the road indefinitely. That like where we're scheduling the same lunch we are never going to actually have for like five years. No, that sounds awful. And like the drain of actually spending time with someone on a weekly or biweekly basis when I don't really want to. Yeah, I mean. I already do that with family. Why would I do that with people that I don't have to know? Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I I think absolutely, again, I I don't think I would say, hey, I don't really want to get together anymore just because that feels a little bit more brusque than you need to. Well, it's a little bit like calling someone up and saying, I'm not going to be calling you anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like you just don't call anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like you just aren't available anymore because you're actually what I hear. What I hear is our dear writer is actually not available for this friendship. Yeah. It doesn't matter what else. they're Even if they're just staring at the wall instead of hanging out with Anna. Yeah. Like they're just they're not available for that. Yeah. That thing. And there's just enough politeness there that Mm -hmm. she might feel a little bummed out, but she's not going to feel like, oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's not. The only possibility, but, like, maybe she was also feeling a little burdened by this friendship and, like, she sort of had to keep suggesting it. Right. And she will feel a slight sense of relief, too. Although, if she's always talking your ear off, she may actually think that you're a great listener and such a good friend. But whatever. She'll find somebody else. Oy vey. Uh, Martha, thank you so much for helping all of these, uh, some wonderful, some working on their way to becoming wonderful, maybe someday, people. Yay, go anti-racism and pro-feminism listeners. Thank you, you can, Daniel. You can always become more wonderful. <laughs> it's always an option. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have a fabulous rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton and production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.